This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and we're discussing the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In this episode, we consider His person and His work in the application of redemption to God's people. We know that Jesus came to save us. We know that He obeyed for us. We know that He died for us. We know that He was raised for us who believe by grace alone through faith alone. But how do we come into possession of Christ? How do we come to faith? How do we come into possession of Christ and all his benefits? Rome claims to mediate Christ and his benefits through its priestly sacrificial ministry. The Remonstrants, that is the Arminians, said that Christ has done his part and now you must do yours. But what do the scriptures say? Here to help us think about how the Holy Spirit works in the application of redemption is Dr. Michael Horton, the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Most recently, he is author of Pilgrim Theology, Core Doctrines for Christian Disciples. This title is available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Good to be back. So we are talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. What was it in your own personal journey about the person and work of the Spirit that caused you to embrace the Reformed explanation of salvation? Oh, that's a great question. I think probably the doctrine of effectual calling, that by bringing us the Word of God, particularly the Gospel, the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts to embrace it. And so uh, it's the same Spirit who inspired the sacred text who illumines my heart to embrace it and then to join his body where that word is exposited week in and week out and taught and lived. I think probably the realization that I couldn't possibly open my own heart, I couldn't resurrect myself, gave me a really wonderful sense that my salvation was completely in God's hands. Doctrine of effectual calling, I think. Let's look at three of these words that you used that I think are very important. In fact, let's define the word I used first, and that's salvation, the doctrine mm-hmm. of salvation. The technical term is sometimes soteriology. What is that, first of all? The study of the doctrine of salvation that includes a lot of things. You know, part of the problem is sometimes when we talk about saved or getting saved or are you saved, we are not clear on what it is we're talking about because salvation is such a wonderfully rich and diverse and encompassing term that That includes our election in Jesus Christ from the foundation of the world. It includes our redemption by Jesus Christ in his obedience, death, and resurrection. It includes our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, and one day our glorification. So when we say salvation, we're saying all of these things are promised to us in Jesus Christ. So the word salvation is really a broad term. It's an encompassing term that gathers up under it a whole range of things. In some ways, not in every way, but in some ways we could say it's almost the whole Christian faith. It is. It's basically a synonym for rescue. We're rescued not only from the wrath of God, which justification answers, but we're also rescued from the dominion of sin and the devil. And that's regeneration and sanctification. And one day we will be finally rescued from the very presence of the enemy, the very presence of our own fleshly depravity, and we'll be raised in glorious body 
ways to love and serve and glorify and enjoy God forever. You used another term that's very important, and the listener may or may not be familiar with it, and that is effectual calling. What is that? Yeah, sometimes it's described as the eye in the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I hate that term, irresistible grace, because if you're going to make up a theological term to fit an acronym, (laughs) that's kind of a problem. Irresistible grace sounds like what most of our critics think Calvinism is. It makes it sound like God is dragging us kicking and screaming against our will into heaven. When actually our canons of Dort, one of our confessional documents, puts it really well by saying that he doesn't override our will, but sweetly bends our will to embrace the gospel. Where before I was in bondage to sin and death, I couldn't possibly accept the things of God or know them. Um, Now I do. And how do I explain that? Is it because I'm smarter than other people? Is it because I'm better than other people? Is it because I got it and you didn't? No, it's because the Holy Spirit, by his grace, sent from the Father in the Son, swept upon my heart and unlocked that gate that I had sealed shut. And so I came willingly to the cross of Christ. I came willingly to see the dreadful state I was in and the glory of his grace simply because he unlocked the door. He gave me new eyes to see. That's not irresistible grace. It's liberating grace. It's intoxicating grace. You know, Paul uses the great analogy of being filled no longer with the flesh, but with the spirit and be no longer drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the spirit. And that is the way to look at it. The spirit is intoxicating. The spirit intoxicates us, I should say, with God's grace, the wonder and surprise of his grace. That's a different picture than someone kind of putting you in handcuffs and taking you off to jail. But the intent of the term irresistible was to signal that however much sin continues to cling to us and however much we continue to struggle with it, it's not as if we can push God away once he's laid hold of us. So it it means something wonderful, but it could be misunderstood. Right. We can, of course, do resist the external word of God when it is preached unless the Holy Spirit calls us effectually to himself. And that's why I think the term effectual calling, which has more history in our tradition, as you know, is more useful because what we're saying is when the Holy Spirit raises the dead, guess what? They're alive. (laughs) He doesn't kind of resuscitate them and they go back into a coma. When the Holy Spirit works savingly, operating on the soul to raise it from spiritual death, that person is alive. He always gets what he intends. And that's the good message of this doctrine, whatever we call it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You're really talking here about a mystery that God the Holy Spirit operated on you, Michael Horton, when you were not expecting it. You weren't asking for it. You weren't looking for it. And nevertheless, by his grace, he came and worked on you and in you. He changed your mind. He changed your heart and he changed your will. And he made you want Christ. So the very fact that you came to want Christ for yourself and to want all his benefits, that was the result of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Right. You know, we often contrast Reformation theology with Rome by talking about the way in which Rome thinks of grace as healing medicine. And we think of grace as God's external declaration that in Christ 
the ungodly are just. Well, that's an actually, an, it's an overstatement. We don't just believe in justification. We do believe that justification is strictly God's declaration that for the sake of Christ, we're righteous through faith. But sanctification is a healing. It is a strange operation of the Spirit that really does heal and restore our will. He doesn't obliterate our will. He doesn't replace our old will with a new will. He heals the will that he gave us in creation. He heals our thinking. He one day will heal our bodies in the general resurrection from the dead. But as Paul says, our inward man is being renewed day by day, even as our outward man is wasting away. And so now, yes, the Holy Spirit comes upon us unbidden just by his own generous love and grace— But we can expect the Spirit to work in us in this gradual way through the means that he's promised to bless. So now I can say I expect the Holy Spirit to work not just in surprising ways, but ordinary ways by coming to his word privately in family worship, and especially with his people on the Lord's Day. The big difference with Rome and Reformation theology or between them is that where Rome says that we are healed unto acceptance with God, you want to say, we want to say that we, having been accepted freely for Christ's sake, are being healed. Right. And we want to say that. We just don't want to say that is justification. And that's why it's so important to distinguish justification and sanctification and to affirm them both. Right. And you used another word that we want to explore briefly, and that is illumines. Because that's something I think people don't really associate with us. When people think about Reformed people, uh, Presbyterians, what have you, outside of this world, they think of us chiefly in terms of the intellect. But for us, on our own terms, this doctrine that the Holy Spirit illumines the Scriptures for us and works within us and illumines us in some sense, Mm -hmm. that's terribly important. Absolutely. You can err on one side in the direction of 16th century terms, the Anabaptists. You might think of the Quakers or, frankly, a tendency among some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters to separate the Word from the Spirit so that everything is the Spirit's direct, immediate, spontaneous activity. And you might even emphasize that it was the Holy Spirit at work because there was no sermon involved or because there was no scripture text being read at the time. It was just the Holy Spirit in my heart. On the other end of the spectrum, though, you can get a kind of enlightenment deism masquerading as Reformed theology that isn't Reformed at all, as you point out, that basically is binitarian, not Trinitarian. Two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, but we don't quite know what to do with the Holy Spirit. And he literally, I don't mean to be irreverent here, but becomes the third wheel in our relationship with the triune God. Well, no, it's the Holy Spirit who makes that relationship with the Father and the Son possible in the first place. It's the Spirit who unites me to the Son so that I cry out to the Father, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit whom the Father has given in the Son as a deposit guaranteeing my final redemption. A great line from John Calvin. Calvin says, don't look for any spiritual gift anywhere than in Jesus Christ, but don't expect any one of those gifts to be given to you apart from the Holy Spirit. 
So Reformed people are not just brains in vats. No, or uh, as a friend calls it, brains on sticks. Yeah. <laughs> so, and which gets me to the last thing that I wanted to ask about to sort of circle back to where we began before we move on. So as you began to become Reformed, wasn't then of principally an intellectual, logical matter or even an aesthetic thing that somehow Reformed theology was beautifully coherent and you were drawn to? it. You're telling me it was really something else. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, works through means, and he attracts us to the beauty, truth, and goodness of the triune God who meets us in Holy Scripture and especially in preaching. See, that's the thing. If you reduce the Christian faith to something of the mind, you don't include the heart. If it's just something of the heart, you don't include the mind. But if you start with the Word of God, which addresses the whole person, and it's the Holy Spirit who's making that word effectual, then you you can't separate out the head from the heart. It's the whole person who's being addressed, and not only the soul, but the body. At times in the history of the church, emphasis has fallen on the extraordinary aspects of the Spirit's work, and we've talked about that a little bit already. Why is the category ordinary so important relative to the work of the Spirit? Why do we talk about the means of grace yeah. in regeneration, for example? Well, you look back all the way to Genesis 1, where the Holy Spirit first appears on the scene. He's hovering over the waters in creation, making it fruitful. The Holy Spirit, I love C.S. Lewis's line, God likes matter, he invented it. And not only did the Father speak matter into being with the Son as the mediator, the Holy Spirit is the one who infuses life into matter. It's amazing. That's why we call him in the Nicene Creed, the Lord and giver of life. In every work that the Father does in the Son, it is the Holy Spirit who brings it to completion. And so it's the Holy Spirit, for example, who was expected in the last days. When the last days come, Joel 2, you'll know it's the last days because the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And then Peter quotes that at Pentecost. The descent of the Holy Spirit is always part of the mopping up job, if you will. The Holy Spirit taking residence in creation to bring it to completion in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, is seen as a sort of career description all the way to the book of Revelation. The Holy Spirit's the one who brings to completion, to perfection, the work that is spoken into existence by the Father in the Son, just as in creation, also in redemption. Think of, you know, what happens when God says, let there be light in creation, and there was light. But also think about when he says, let the earth bring forth, and the earth brought forth. That's not an immediate, spontaneous event. It's miraculous, but it's God endowing creation with ordinary gifts so that it can follow the laws that he created nature with to bear fruit according to its season and so forth and its kind. Well, the same is true in the virgin birth. Mary, how will she give birth to God incarnate? The Holy Spirit will overshadow her, the same language as in Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit overshadowing the waters of her womb to make the waters fruitful so that what is born of her will be called holy, the Son of God. And then you see it in regeneration or effectual calling when the Holy Spirit raises us from spiritual death. Let Lazarus come forth. And yet, there's also the let the earth bring forth. When you get to Ephesians 5 and Paul says, here are the fruit of the Spirit. Hey, bear the fruit of the Spirit. He's not saying this is going to be some spontaneous, extraordinary thing. He says just gradually you're part of Christ's vine. He's the vine. You're the branches. You will bear fruit. 
and this is what the fruit looks like. So the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, not only in those extraordinary moments that we sometimes identify with glorious conversions. The Holy Spirit is just as identified with that slow process of a field becoming a harvest, of juice fermenting and becoming rich wine. Those are the images that we find in Scripture, and it's understandable that they're horticultural, agricultural images. Sometimes we say, Scott, it's like sanctification is like watching corn grow. Well, you've watched corn grow, being from Nebraska. It's pretty (laughs) slow. And weed and and soybeans and milo. (laughs) And yet all those are the analogies in the New Testament for the Christian life. Well, I think we've got to rediscover, not reinvent, our own analogies, but rediscover those analogies that tell us, look, put your hand to the plow, bear the fruit of the Spirit. This is slow. This is a process. Don't cut yourself off from the vine and think you can do this by yourself, just you and Jesus. If you're attached to Christ the vine, then you are simultaneously attached to the branches, his body. And he ordinarily blesses his people over time, sanctifying them through very common and sometimes even boring processes. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So you're using the word ordinary in two senses at the same time. In the one sense, it means the usual way that God operates. And in the other sense, you mean divinely ordained. Right. Both senses. And you sort of interweave these two senses. Any farmer knows that... You know, I'm thinking of my grandfather, who was a wheat farmer. Uh, when the harvest would come in, back then, later in the summer, you know, that was the usual thing. But it was no small thing, right? Yeah. It, one hailstorm could, at the wrong time, or rain at the wrong time, or lack of moisture in the winter, all of that could do terrible damage. And he knew that all of that came from God. And so you're not really counseling deism. You're advocating against that very strongly. It's the opposite. I think that one of the reasons we have deism, even in an informal way in our churches and in our own lives and hearts, is because we have come to associate the Holy Spirit with things that go bump in the night. You know, extraordinary things. You know, Holy Ghost, that's weird. It's Halloween stuff. No, the Holy Spirit is associated with the daily things out in the light, out of the shadows. He's associated with making plants grow. He's associated with babies coming into the world. The Holy Spirit is associated with turning hearts that are turned cold toward God. The Holy Spirit is actively engaged 
in every little thing and every big thing. And because he's involved, no little thing is is little, really. That's the point. Here's the problem, Scott. We've given over, between the Pentecostals and the deists, we've given over the yeah. extraordinary to the Holy Spirit and the ordinary to natural laws. We've set up a false choice where yeah. either we've chased God out of the story, or if somebody isn't being slain in the Spirit, then he's not really present. That's right. Did God heal this person or did the doctors? Well, in this traditional Christian approach, we say, both. both. God healed <laughs> through the doctors. And he operates through your minister. Yeah, every it's week. Through, we hope it's not a boring sermon, and we, we could recommend a certain seminary <laughs> where, where we, we think the student would learn, their minister would learn not to be boring. But sometimes you're bored. But sometimes, yeah. right? Sin, sin affects everything, even sitting through a sermon. Nevertheless, God the Holy Spirit is operating in that, even though it's not spectacular. Absolutely. And, and even though, rather than falling down from being slain, you're falling asleep. Right. Yeah. Right? Not yeah. that we're counseling <laughs> sleepiness in the sermon. No, there are plenty of boring moments in a drive with your family in the car on a family trip, but you wouldn't have given up that family trip for anything in the world. As you look back to it, right. there's a lot more meaning to that trip afterwards, in a sense. Yeah. You see things that you didn't know you were experiencing when you were on the trip. Exactly. So stop putting the Holy Spirit in this little corner called miracles. You know, the extraordinary. The Holy Spirit is working in all kinds of ordinary ways, extraordinarily, if, if I put it that way. Whatever the Holy Spirit does is pretty big. Bringing people from death to life yeah. is an extraordinary thing. And yet, it is the ordinary, in the twofold sense of that word, the ordinary work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Ordinary means. Which is what we say in Heidelberg 65, the Holy Spirit creates faith through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through the use of the Holy Sacraments. And as you have said too many times to count, <laughs> you know, Romans 10, right? 14 yeah. through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Yeah, so are, are we faith going comes to, by hearing. Are we going to accuse the Apostle Paul of a kind of deism because he understands this is how God the Spirit ordinarily operates? Exactly. I, to quote Calvin again, he said, the Anabaptists, those were sort of the Pentecostals of the 16th century. Say that again, because the listener might not know that. Okay, yeah, the Anabaptists, Baptists, 16th century Anabaptists were sort of the Pentecostals of the 16th century, and they tended to separate the Spirit from the Word. So they associated the Holy Spirit with that which is miraculous and direct and immediate precisely because preaching wasn't involved. You knew the Holy Spirit was doing the work. In contrast to that, Calvin said the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Holy Spirit is bound to the means. The Anabaptists don't believe that God can freely bind himself to them ordinarily. And I think that that's exactly the way of saying it. The Holy Spirit can regenerate someone on the top of a mountain in any part of the world that he wants, apart from any means whatsoever. And I don't doubt that he has and does and will do things extraordinarily. But what we have in Scripture is a promise about how he ordinarily works. And ordinarily... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And ordinarily, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the means by which he strengthens us in that and signifies and seals to us the reality of his promise in Christ. So to say that he works through those means is not to say that the means themselves are saving. It is to say that God is saving, but he saves through means. He saves us through his word and his sacraments. 
Acts 2.38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Arminians understand that to be a condition that has to be met in order for the Spirit to be received. How do you understand that language? Yeah, I think that we, on one hand, have to not try to explain away the New Testament. You know, every time you come to a passage, sometimes in my circles growing up as a Baptist, we would come upon those passages. We say we're Bible believers, but whenever we came to Titus 3, 5 or passages like that in Acts 2, referring to water baptism, clearly in association with the new birth and so forth, we immediately had to follow up with saying it doesn't mean what it sounds like. I think on one hand, we have to avoid that. On the other hand, we also have to reckon with the fact that In other passages in Scripture, it clearly teaches that just as you could have been circumcised in the Old Testament outwardly, but not inwardly circumcised of heart, the same is true in the New Testament. That's attested in many New Testament passages. That's why there are warnings, such as in Hebrews 4 and 6 and 10, warnings about not being like those who were only circumcised outwardly, but to be those who combine the hearing of the gospel with faith. So you can receive the sign without receiving the reality signified. You have to distinguish between them, but you can't separate them. And that's why those passages, I think, say ordinarily you receive through faith. You look back at your baptism and through that baptism, you are reaching the promise of Christ. Your empty hand is grabbing onto Christ and your baptism just makes it easier to do that. It's a tangible way the Holy Spirit grabs our hand and says, here, attach yourself to these things merely as a sign and seal of my promise. It's Christ who is the reality, not the water, not the bread, not the wine. Christ is the reality, but he uses these tangible, visible means, not just as an object lesson, but as the way of binding us to himself. Apart from faith, however, there is no real relation with Christ. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In our tradition, some of our writers have distinguished between the order of teaching and the order of salvation. So, for example, uh, here in in Acts 2.38, there's a call to repent, but dead people don't repent. And so teaching has to be presented to people in some order. And experientially, that's what happens, right? We hear, we respond, promises are made, promises are received, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly how the Spirit operated in that instance. Yeah, exactly. When you read Acts 2, it's important to also go back to the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 through 16 and see what Jesus is promising and teaching us concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Upper Room before his departure is exactly what breaks out at Pentecost. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and guilt and unrighteousness, and he will teach you everything concerning me. What happens at Pentecost? They're cut to the quick. In other words, the Holy Spirit brought conviction. After the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the gospel was unleashed like never before. Jesus had never seen the success through his preaching and teaching that the apostles saw because of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he was preparing them and said, greater works than these 
will you do? He wasn't talking about greater miracles. He was talking about greater fruit from their witness. Of course, Jesus had greater fruit from his death and resurrection. But I mean, in terms of people responding, very few people responded to Jesus. But because of what Jesus did and the sending of the Holy Spirit, wow, people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation to this very day. And it began right there at Pentecost. Paul says in Galatians 3, 2, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So there's an order by which we normally are brought to new life and given the spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also talk in our tradition a lot about union with Christ. How does the spirit unite us to Christ? And why is this truth so important? Right. Well, one of the classic texts for this is uh, Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul raises the question, having now for four chapters told them about the greatness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, should we then sin that grace may abound? Hey, this is a pretty good deal. The more I sin, the more grace there is. And Paul comes back and he doesn't say, well, if you do, you're going to lose your salvation. Or, well, you better not, or you never were a Christian to begin with. What he says is very interesting. You don't really understand the gospel yet. You don't really understand everything that is included in salvation. It's not just the justification, salvation from the wrath of God and the guilt of your sins that I've been talking about for the last several chapters. It's also salvation from the dominion of sin. If you have been buried with Christ in baptism— then you have been raised with Christ in newness of life. In other words, to say, Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord, or I'm justified, but not being sanctified. I can be a carnal Christian, dead in my sins, but I'll still be saved because I walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. To say that is, in effect, to say that I was baptized into Jesus' crucifixion, but not into his resurrection. And Paul says that's impossible. If you've been baptized into one, you've been baptized into the other. It's one baptism. So wonderful privileges that we have because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Finally, as we begin to draw this to a close, in Romans 1.4, Paul associates the Spirit with Jesus' resurrection, as you've been doing here already. What does that tell us, you and me, about the nature of the new life and What do we mean and what does Paul mean to say that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead? Why is that so significant for the nature of the Christian life and the relationship between the believer and the spirit? Yeah, what's really wonderful there, Scott, is the way that Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the believer are sort of juxtaposed. Christ is the first fruits of the general harvest. He is the vine, we're the branches. He's the head, we're the body. All that kind of corporate imagery. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. But then you have the Holy Spirit as the one who is uniting us to Christ. Again, to quote Calvin, he begins book three of the Institutes by saying, everything that Christ accomplished for us and outside of us in history would have remained useless had the Holy Spirit not now united us to Christ with all of his benefits. So that's the point, again, that we have all of our blessings in Christ, all of our benefits in Christ, but all of them given to us, made ours because of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who indwells us, this is just mind-blowing, the same Holy Spirit who caused the second person of the Holy Trinity to become incarnate in the womb of a Jewish virgin, the same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters in creation, the same Holy Spirit who fell at Pentecost, and the same Holy Spirit who vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, making him the first fruits of those who sleep, is the Spirit who indwells you and me right now. 
That is absolutely phenomenal. My daughter the other day said that someone at school told her that she has an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. And so she goes back and forth, whether she's going to listen to her angel or her devil. And she said, I didn't quite know what to say to her. I knew that was wrong. But think about it this way. You don't have an angel on your shoulder. You may, you know, who knows? We just... Don't have yeah, the, texts underneath us for that uni- one. The universe is not closed. <laughs> That's but. right. But here's the deal. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Don't rejoice that you have an angel on your shoulder. Rejoice that you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. That is phenomenal. The third person of the Holy Godhead lives in you. That's greater than any, let's say, superstitious alternative we could possibly imagine. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.